I'll just let Clint there fix my EQ while I get set up. It is a joy to be with you all this morning. Uh, I, I do do things a little bit differently. Yes, I've got the, the longer hair, I drink coffee. I also preach from an iPad. Uh, so uh, maybe that's a little different. I, I do use uh, the old uh, calligraphy pen for you. No, I know, you're, you're, you're beyond that. You're a word processor guy. All right. <laughs> uh, some guys do that. It, there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, I take the shortcut. Uh, it really is a privilege to be with you all this morning. Uh, the church, your church, has grown since the last time I was with you. I, I was here, we got to be here in August of 2020. Uh, you guys were up at High, it was a high country, high country orchard outside. You started a church during COVID. Who does that? That's amazing. And look what the Lord has done here. Uh, we, when we were there, we were passing through. We got to be with you guys. We sincerely felt unity, um, true worship, and it was just like a bond of peace there when a lot of churches didn't have that bond of peace going on. COVID, do you remember? Things were coming apart at a bunch of churches. Uh, maybe not churches that you were a part of, but I saw some kind of coming apart at the seams as a result of uh, some division in the COVID era. Well, you guys started a church and there was peace. There was peace there. We sensed it. It's really good to be back with you today, worshiping with you. Now, I feel it's appropriate for me and even necessary uh, to mention with you a little bit about um, your church and your personal fingerprints on my family. Uh, we are, we, you have a special place in our hearts, and maybe you don't know this, but you have ministered to us um, even before this church got planted. Many of you who are here had an impact on my wife and I and my family. Uh, it was back in 2019 that my daughter was in a pretty significant uh, four-wheeler accident, and that was nearby here. We were on vacation, and we found ourselves unexpectedly at Sacred Heart Children's Hospital. And uh, some of you who are sitting here today heard about the, the needs that we had, and you looked after our kids, you um, provided meals for us, you provided a vehicle because our vehicle <laughs> broke down when all this went kablooey on us. Anyways, you, you blessed us. And so you have a special place in our heart uh, this morning. Uh, you've impacted us greatly. And we want to say thank you. Um, and our church says thank you and sends their greetings from Spring Creek. We know you did that because you love Christ, and uh, we want to honor him this morning uh, by going to his word. And so now, gr all greetings aside, this being the first Sunday after the 4th of July, I want to remind you of a statement that's enshrined in paragraph 2 of the Declaration of Independence. Why not, right? We're at church. Let's talk about now. Uh, it's to just kick things off here, guys. And it says this, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We've all heard that before. 
The signers of the Declaration recognize that every person has God-endowed rights, not the least of which is the pursuit of happiness. And this pursuit has been the cornerstone of the American dream for centuries, the freedom to find happiness in the way that you choose. Now, I, I affirm that right generally, but I recognize and I stress that because of human sinfulness, the pursuit of happiness is horribly abused and almost never truly realized. Human sinfulness causes one to believe that acquiring things brings happiness or achievement brings meaning or doing things, activities, adventure brings some kind of permanent satisfaction. It can bring momentary satisfaction, but it is fleeting satisfaction. And we all see versions of that kind of thinking in our culture, don't we? There's the, the materialism that's prevalent in North America. We see sexual identity politics, people trying to find some kind of satisfaction in, in some alternate um, identity and sexuality. It's so odd, but they're trying to find happiness in this. Excessive leisure, fame, prestige, power, activism. Most of it is being sought in the pursuit of happiness. People are trying to pursue happiness in ways they were not designed to find it, and it doesn't ultimately satisfy. And that's because it's the creator of something who determines how that thing best functions. The creator of, say, a rocking chair doesn't intend for that rocking chair to be a pillar support of a building. Uh, the creator of a podcast doesn't intend for the podcast to be some kind of life-saving medicine. That's weird. How would that even work? But the creator gets to be the one who says how that thing works. The end user of something does not determine the function intended by the creator. And though our country's founders recognize that we have the God-given right to pursue happiness, which is not directed in some way by our government, it doesn't mean that we get to determine how we were designed to find that happiness. We are end users of our persons, not the creators of them. The true creator tells the end users how the creation functions, how it's intended to work. The creator tells us where we were created to find happiness. That enters our text this morning. It's Matthew 5. You've probably seen it in, uh, in the bulletin in front of you. And I'd like us to open our owner's manual, as it were, written by the designer and creator of our persons. And as we do that, let me ask you a question. Are you happy this morning? Not just intermittently happy, not fleetingly happy, not superficially or circumstantially happy, but deeply, truly, and satisfyingly happy. Now, if you are a believer here this morning, you should be presently, now. And the title of the sermon this morning is Your Blessed Life Now. 
You may recognize that that is a title, that's a spoof on a best-selling Christian book. If you didn't know that, please don't go look up that book. It's not worth the uh, paper that it's written on. But if you're a believer here this morning, our text is going to tell you why you should be happy today. Let's read together Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. And it says this, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, the disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That is God's word. May he bless it this morning. And this morning as we dig into it, I want you to see four reasons why a Christian should be satisfyingly deeply happy. Four reasons why a Christian should be satisfyingly deeply happy. And the first reason is, this is a Sunday school answer, this is a Sunday school reason, because Jesus said you should be happy. Jesus said you should be happy. Let me remind you that the book of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience to explain to them that Jesus was their long-awaited Savior and King. And if we could summarize this book in just a phrase, we could we could say uh, Jesus as king, that encapsulates the book of Matthew. And in our text, Jesus exercises his authority as king to declare the blessing of those who belong to him. And this is the introduction to what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And now some people treat this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, as a list of requirements to be a Christian, sort of a moralistic view of Jesus' sermon. It's a, a code of ethics, if you will, according to them, to gain entry into the kingdom of God. But viewing the sermon that way doesn't sound like it would make me feel very secure and happy especially when you take Matthew 5.48 into account. Look quickly at Matthew 5.48. It's unsettling if this is a code of conduct to enter the kingdom, to become a Christian. It says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ooh, heavy. Man, is this, is this an entry requirement 
for the kingdom? Do I have to do that to get into the kingdom? If I'm treating this sermon as a, as a moralistic standard by which I can gain entry into Christ's future kingdom, verse 48 doesn't make me feel very happy right now. Frankly, it leaves me in a panic. But if I treat it as a sermon to those who are already his disciples, who have exercised faith in him already, then the sermon is full of hope and future promises for believers and full of exhortation to grow in Christ-likeness. And for non-believers, it sets such a high bar that it kicks their self-righteous legs out from underneath of them and hopefully convicts them of sin. That's exactly what this sermon is. It's aimed at those who already follow Christ with the added benefit of undercutting the self-righteous unbelievers. Look at what it says in verse 1, and we already read it, but it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse 2, he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them. He was teaching them. Who is them? Well, the closest antecedent to them is his disciples, his followers. It's, it's not meant for the crowd. Though the crowd is listening, he's talking to those who are already his. Jesus was teaching his followers. It's a message to his people. And what did he say to them? Look at Matthew 5, 3. The content of Jesus' teaching to his disciples, he says, Blessed are, present tense. Verse 4, blessed are, present tense. Verse 5, blessed are, present tense. Verse 6, present tense. So on, so on. Blessing, blessing, present tense, all the way through verse 11. You get the picture. Those who are under Jesus' kingly rule are presently blessed. And this word translated blessed in the NASB is the word makarios, meaning blissful or fortunate or happy. One commentator says that the, these beatitudes as they're known, as they're called, are essentially commendations or congratulations, statements to the effect that a person is in a good situation. It's like, congratulations on your wedding day. You must be elated. Congratulations on your graduation. You must be so satisfied of all your hard work. Well, how about this? Congratulations that Jesus is your King. You must be so happy that you are in the good life now, presently. Now, you might, might scratch your head and say, well, uh, I don't really feel that happy. Well, maybe we need to understand the true nature of Christian happiness, what it is. One pastor explains it this way. He says, to be blessed or happy is not a superficial feeling of well-being based on circumstance, but a deep supernatural experience of contentedness based on the fact that one's life is right with God. And we as American Christians are, 
often more uh, tuned into circumstantial well-being than supernatural contentedness because we're so accustomed to first world creature comforts that our country affords to us. We are so busied and consumed by them. We are so impacted by a culture of materialism and success. We are marketed and sold discontentment that causes us to overlook and miss our happiness. The Puritan writer Jeremiah Burroughs speaks to this condition in his work, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, and he says this, and I quote, When the heart of a man has nothing to do but be busy about creature comforts, every little thing troubles him. But when the heart is taken up with the weighty things of eternity, with the great things of eternal life, the things here below that disquieted it before are things now of no consequence to him in comparison with the other. How things fall out here is not so much regarded by him if the one thing that is necessary is provided for, end quote. If your life is busied with creature comforts, so much so that your contentment, your happiness uh, is tethered to it, there's a problem there. You already have Christ in what you need to be content. He is all that you need to be content. Your heart now needs to be instructed in that contentment. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. And contentment is a virtue that we must develop, a discipline we should be striving for. And Spurgeon writes about a poor Christian woman who was hungry and given a crust and a cup of water, and she exclaimed, What? All this? And Christ too? And to us, we, we kind of, we chuckle, like, oh man, Ooh, how could she say that? But her perspective was so right. He was all she needed to be happy. And then something else, like bread and water, is a blessing, a, a special uh, cherry on top to all that she needed anyways. Christians have been provided the one thing necessary for true, deep, lasting happiness. It's a Savior King. A Savior King. That's what we needed. That's all we need. Christians, you should be happy because Jesus is your King and He has made you right with God the Father. You should be deeply happy because Jesus is your King. The second reason a Christian should be satisfyingly deeply happy is because you are presently citizens of a better country than you're in now. Amen. You're presently citizens of a better country you're in now. Did you hear uh, that when the Dobbs v. Jackson case overturned Roe v. Wade, that Google searches for how to move to Canada increased by 800%? Can you believe that? Oh, man, oh, this country's falling apart. I need to get out of here. I'm going to go to Canada. So they said, how to go to Canada. Pro-abortionists were looking for a better country. And even though you and I both know that our country got a little bit better 
after that uh, ruling by the, the justices, um, our country is really, really severely broken. Look at what we have for leadership, right? Oh, man, I won't get into that. Uh, <laughs> frankly, even with the best leader that we could possibly vote into power in 2024, and I won't give you my opinion on who I think that should be, our country will still have violent crime problems, still have murders of the born and the unborn, it will still have thefts, still have child abuse, still sexual perversions and hatred and jealousy and envy, and the list goes on and on and on. Doesn't matter how much lipstick you put on a pig, it's still a pig. <laughs> we need a better country, not just a better leader in this country. And Canada is not the better country, let me tell you something. If you guys are watching news, that's really not the place to go. All right. Well, Jesus is king. And a king will have a kingdom, a kingdom that we should be happy about. And flip back a couple pages to Matthew 3, verse 2. Matthew 3, verse 2, the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, the one who was uh, to make ready the people of Israel to receive their king, he says in verse 2 of chapter 3, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is a kingdom and it's coming. The Old Testament expected the kingdom and it's at hand. It's right before you guys. Chapter 4, verse 17 Look at that with me. After John the Baptist was arrested, Matthew writes, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And then he called the disciples and he began his ministry. And then in verse 23 of chapter 4, it says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people, which, by the way, was a snapshot, a preview of the coming kingdom. That's what his miracles were. If anybody tries to tell you that because we're Christians, we should be able to do miracles because Jesus did miracles, that's crazy. Uh, he was the one who was coming demonstrating that the kingdom was at hand, and he was showing a snapshot, a preview of what was to come. No more sickness, no more tears. And then in Matthew 5, our text, Jesus begins his royal address speaking with the authority of a king. And that's where he says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The king was announcing his kingdom. And you might wonder, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, there are a lot of ideas that have been kicked around out there, but a couple of things that the kingdom is not. The kingdom, believe it or not, the kingdom is not the church. The kingdom is not the church. You can't put an equal sign between the two. The, the church equals the kingdom and the kingdom equals the church. No, that's not it. There are kingdom citizens within the church, but the church is not the kingdom. And the kingdom of heaven is also not a spiritual escape from earth to come and sit on a cloud somewhere. 
It's not to be mistaken as a fluffy place where we go to die and get away from all the hardships of this life. And while the topic of the kingdom is so much more than I can cover in a flyover of these 12 verses, let me give you a summary of it. The concept of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is rooted in Genesis 1.26. You know that verse. We know it well. It says in Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then in verse 27, God made man. Verse 28, he says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, that's where the, the concept of kingdom begins, begins. Man is ruling over God's creation. God puts him in that position. This is the beginning of what's known as God's mediatorial kingdom, God's rulership over creation through man. And the fall of mankind into sin was the failure of the first Adam to rule as God tasked him to do. And so the rest of the Bible's storyline unfolds God's plan to send the second Adam, the God-man Jesus Christ, to restore mankind, the rest of creation, and rule in perfect justice and righteousness as the mediator that the first Adam could not be. He failed to be, but Christ would do what he failed to do. And about the kingdom, Paul says in Romans 8.21 that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Even the creation will be restored and set free when the children of, of God are revealed. Isaiah 19.23 says this, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. So restored creation and then restored nations all worshiping together God. All the nations coming together. Nations that were formerly at war, that hated each other, um, they, will, they will travel on the same routes to come and worship this Savior King. And that's not fulfilled in the church. This is future. The kingdom of heaven is where the nations of earth serve our God and King, Jesus Christ. There will be harmony like the world has never seen. Christ will rule righteously. He will judge fairly. It will be a better country than the one that we have right now. A perfect country with a perfect ruler. He will rule on His throne here on earth and his kingdom throne will be here. And I want you to see something, something cool about that kingdom throne. Turn with me quickly to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and look at what it says in verse 21 to believers. It says, Revelation 3, 21, He who overcomes 
I will grant to him, grant to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That is a pretty cool statement. Back up a few verses, Revelation 26 and 27. It says something very similar. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, and I also have received authority from my Father. Christ will rule, and we will rule with Christ as brothers of Christ. Now go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It says, theirs is the kingdom of God. Note that there's a present tense verb here, is. I believe this is a futuristic use of the present tense. And what that means is the future kingdom of heaven, ruled by Jesus himself, will so assuredly belong to believers that it's like he's talking about it as though it's already theirs, as though they have already realized it. And they will participate in ruling with Christ. How amazing is that? How much better is that than getting elected to a local office or to the state legislature or to Congress or even to the White House? You will rule with Christ the King. Now, I'm not advocating for being removed from political affairs in this country, but don't get your happiness uh, wrapped up in the outcome of what you see going on around you. Don't let it be dictated by what happens in political offices in this country. You are a citizen of a much better country than the one that you're a part of right now. That is a massive reason why you should be happy. Even in the chaos that we see, guys, it's chaotic. America's chaotic right now. We should be deeply, lastingly, satisfyingly happy because our kingdom is yet to come. Reason number three that a Christian should be satisfyingly and deeply happy is that you bear characteristics of the king himself. If you are a Christian here today, You are growing in Christ's likeness. You don't perfectly have the characteristics of Christ the King, but increasingly, Christ's likeness is like a passport to the kingdom. Not that the passport conveys citizenship, but that it's an evidence of citizenship. And you can't get a passport without first being a citizen. I know Oliver here, um, he he told all of you that I'm a Canadian citizen. I've also been an American citizen from birth. I didn't have proof of that until about four or five years ago. I I actually didn't even know that I was an American citizen until four or five years ago. Isn't that weird? Uh, (coughs) Yeah, born born abroad to an American citizen. Um, But it doesn't mean I wasn't an American citizen until I got proof of it. I got proof of my citizenship for four and a half years ago I already had the citizenship. That was a recognition of it, and it's evidence of my citizenship that I can present to somebody so that I can cross into the country and live here. 
Christ's likeness is evidence of your kingdom citizenship. The kingdom that is to come, you're getting a passport for it now. It's a growing passport because you grow in Christ's likeness. And if we step back and look at each one of these beatitudes as they're called, the blessed, is, the blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the gentle, the desire for righteous, righteousness, those who are merciful, pure in heart, all of those beatitudes, if we look at each one of those, could we not ascribe all of that to Jesus? Was he not the perfect embodiment of all of those things? Certainly, we can find verses in the Scripture that support each one, and I can't address every single one of them. Uh, I think every beatitude is probably a sermon all by itself, and I've got 12 verses, and we're not going to do that. But I would just like to cherry-pick a few of these qualities uh, and ascribe them to Jesus and see how He was the perfect embodiment of that. So look at verse 3. Jesus was poor in spirit. Jesus was poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit is the opposite of being rich in pride. Jesus had every reason to be proud. He was the Son of God. He is perfectly righteous and holy in Himself. He was the King of the world, but He became poor instead. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. Philippians 2 verse 8 says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus was poor in spirit in that he did not regard himself as something even though he was everything. How much more should we regard ourselves as nothing? We are not God. Jesus is. Jesus was humble. He didn't regard himself as some some hot shot rolling in there to Jerusalem. I'm going to take this place over. Yeah, slapping people around, making a big deal of who he was. That wasn't him. He came in lowly. We too should model that in our character. Yet my tendency as a believer is to self-exalt, to defend myself, to win the argument, to be right, to be well thought of, by others, to build my own kingdom of self, but that's not Christ's way. And I trust that you guys probably struggle with the same things that I do. You've got to repent of these things and follow the model of Christ through the Holy Spirit to be poor in spirit. There's perhaps nothing more off-putting and unchristian than somebody who is proud. Christ's likeness for the Christian, though, is growing in humility. And Jesus is saying that we ought to be happy as we recognize this poverty in spirit because that means that we have the riches of His. We don't need our own kingdom because we have His. We don't need our pennies and our nickels because we have His $100 bills. And I'm not saying that for health, wealth, and prosperity. That was purely metaphorical, okay? (laughs) I don't want to tiptoe into that. Definitely not. 
Jesus was humble, and we ought to model that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's look at another characteristic that we could ascribe to Christ. Yes, all could be ascribed, but we're just kind of floating through a few here so we don't take all afternoon. Verse 5, Jesus is gentle. Jesus is gentle, closely related to humble. Some translations uh, say meek. And gentleness is a soft and loving behavior, the opposite of awkwardness and rudeness. It's not being a doormat or a pushover. It's having strength, but choosing not to domineer or assert oneself. And some of the saddest counseling cases that I've been involved in are ones in which uh, uh, one spouse has domineered the other. Most frequently, it's the husband who lords over the wife. He has exercised his will to overpower hers and crush her into submission. And she is broken by his demands and his control. And this is not gentleness. This is not a characteristic of Christ. Isaiah 42, a servant, uh, a servant uh, a psalm within Isaiah it says in verse 3, prophetically about Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. And Jesus said about himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Though Jesus is the king of the coming kingdom, he does not grind his subjects into submission. He does not afflict them with hardships. His gentle meekness is shown in his first advent through his mission to come and serve and not be served. Jesus is gentle, and we need to model that, demonstrate that we are his and that His Spirit lives within us through our gentleness. Finally, the last character quality that I want to point out here in this point is that Jesus is merciful. Verse 7, Jesus is merciful. The question that's often asked is, what makes mercy different from grace? And one commentator writes, Primarily, it is the quality of helplessness or misery on the part of those who receive mercy. Grace is love when love is undeserved. Mercy is grace in action. Mercy is love reaching out to help those who are helpless and who need salvation. Mercy identifies with the miserable in their misery. Jesus is merciful. Luke records the, the account, if you recall, of the blind beggar in uh, chapter 18. As he passed by, the beggar cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He's, he says, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus healed this man. And then on the cross, in the worst possible condition, Jesus found himself. He extended mercy to the thief on the cross next to him who was also in a pitiful condition. And although that thief was in a, a pitiful physical condition, his spiritual condition was no worse than anyone else under God's wrath. He was helpless. And Jesus extended help. He extended salvific 
help to him. Practical mercy to the beggar and salvific spiritual mercy to the thief. We have been shown mercy and we are to be a people of mercy, a people of compassion and love. This is our passport, folks, our character that shows that we are, in fact, his. Uh, I saw a, a video this week uh, of a, a, a Satanist uh, coming out as one who was leaving the church of Satan. He was a South African Satanist, and he was explaining why he left Satanism. And he described how he had received mercy from a few Christians when a wrathful response to him would have been appropriate for his blasphemy. He was openly blaspheming the name of Christ, saying he, by his own account, he was saying terrible things about the Lord Jesus. But they showed him mercy. They showed him compassion. They didn't, they didn't lambaste him and attack him, but they came and they tended to his practical needs. They loved him. They shared the gospel of Christ with him. And that broke his stony heart through the Holy Spirit's intervention. That man was shown mercy and it changed him. Paul writes in Romans 2 verse 4 that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. God used the care and compassion of a few Christians to lead this very dark and unlovely man to repentance. The unloveliness of sin is becoming more and more apparent in our nation, and the veil of moralism has come off. It's very obvious that we are not one nation under God, and our response could be to wall off, to isolate, to shun sinners, to find a piece of property in North Idaho and go <laughs> run away from everything. <laughs> but we are called to show gospel mercy to them, speaking the truth in love, extending practical care and compassion to authenticate the gospel message that we preach, showing mercy. And as you grow in sanctification and in Christ's likeness, your evidence of kingdom citizenship becomes more and more apparent, and consequently, your assurance that you are in fact Christ grows. A Christian should be satisfyingly, deeply happy because he bears the characteristics of Christ himself. And the fourth reason, the fourth reason a Christian should be satisfyingly, deeply happy is because you will receive full benefits of citizenship in the future. Full benefits of the citizen, your citizenship of the kingdom of heaven in the future. Matthew 5, 3 and verse 10 says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it sandwiches a bunch of future promises in verses 4 through 9. It says in verse 4, for they shall be comforted. In verse 5, they shall inherit. Verse 6, they shall be satisfied. Verse 7, they shall receive mercy. Verse 8, they shall see God. Verse 9, they shall be called sons of God. Future promises, comfort, inheritance, righteousness that satisfies, mercy, seeing God himself, being sons of God, promises 
in the future. They will be realized. And I think we feel the pain in our current brokenness of this world and our country. And that really impacts us. That can cause us sorrow from day to day. I, I saw last night on the, the way home, we were driving home, in fact, from North Idaho, um, and we stopped to get some food on the way home. And as we were waiting for uh, Chick-fil-A to bring the food out, uh, I was thumbing through some news. And I, I am a news junkie, so I probably talk too much about it. But I saw a video, some protests in, I think it was in D.C., pro-abortion protests. And they were screaming, we love to kill babies. We love to kill babies. They're screaming it. Man, that just sunk my heart. I showed my wife, that sunk her heart. That caused us sorrow. If we let the present here and now dictate how we feel, we forget the future promises, the future inheritance, the future hope that we have in the coming kingdom, we can be pretty downcast. So there's so much evil, so many things wrong with our world, but Jesus is our great hope for the future, for the present and for the future. There is inheritance there that we cannot lose. As we wind down here, I want to read a song to you. You probably know this song. Um, most conservative Christians know this song and love it. It's by Andrew Peterson. It's, is he worthy? Maybe you guys have sung it here. Um, this is what it says. It says, do you feel the world is broken? And the response is, we do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish you could see it all made new. We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is the new creation coming? It is. The glory of the Lord will be the light within our midst. It's good to remind ourselves of this. We've got to remind ourselves of it. The glory of the Lord will be the light within our midst. And he says, is anybody worthy? Is anybody whole? Can anybody break the seal and open the scroll, and he talks about Jesus Christ. And he ends with, from every peoples and tribe, every nation and tongue, he has made us a kingdom of priests to God to reign with the Son. Future hope, future promises. We ought to be happy. Very, very deeply, satisfyingly happy, even today, with everything that's broken, because the best is yet to come. Christian, you should be happy this morning because you are forgiven of sin, free from the wrath of God, and the best is yet to come in Christ's future kingdom. And so as we close, I want us to think about the inalienable rights that the founders in our country identified, specifically the pursuit of happiness. I do believe that God created us with that right, but he also created us to find true, deeply satisfying happiness, blessedness in him alone. <clears throat> we don't get to write our owner's manual ourselves. We aren't the determiners of how we best find our happiness. We are the end user, not the creator. He tells us that we are designed 
to delight in Him and find our happiness in Him. Christian, are you happy this morning? Do you delight in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you delight in His salvation? Does your happiness find its source in the kingdom of heaven? Do you carry your passport of growing Christ-likeness with you? Does the hope of your citizenship's future benefits fuel your happiness even in the present? You are currently blessed now with even more blessings to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that there's so much more in your word that we could mine out of that passage. But what we know is that the best is to come in the future because you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of the world and to one day reign perfectly and to call sons and daughters of yours to reign with him in eternity. And thank you for his ministry on the cross and his future ministry as the mediator of your kingdom. We have no hope apart from him. There is no happiness that is lasting apart from him. Lord, cause us to set our eyes this week on the Lord Jesus Christ. May that fuel our joy. May that fuel our sanctification. May that fuel our witness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.